technique of meditation. There's lots of different forms of meditation. We're doing a specific practice here, and of course, every teacher has their own twist on the instructions. Any questions about these instructions? Please, Bruce. I have one about the breath. Mm-hmm. Um, is it in through the nose and out through the mouth, or I find it comfortable to just be nose and can shift up? What's the best method? How do you, however you normally breathe. Probably you, right? Most of us normally breathe mostly through our noses. Once in a while, there's some mouth breathers. <laughs> but, you know, if you're not talking, you know, and when you're talking, then there's often kind of an in through the nose and out through the mouth as you're speaking. But whatever's natural to you. Uh, part of what we're trying to do here is not be controlling about the breath but almost uh, observing. I like to use the term receiving the sensations of the body breathing itself. So it's effortless breathing. It takes a bit of effort to breathe in, you know, to consciously breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth and that sort of Hindu ujjaya breath type of thing where you're forcing it, uh, you know, and that's a different meditation technique. It's useful too in its own way. But from this perspective... Just whatever's natural. If you're a natural mouth breather, then meditate with, you know, breathing through your mouth. If you naturally breathe through your nose, then use that as your object. Let that be the way that you breathe while you're sitting. Anything else about the instructions? It's clear, it's simple. You just got to do it, right? Or about your experience while you're meditating that you're not sure how to work with anything around that technique. Okay. So as far as a lecture goes tonight, I do have some thoughts. Uh, and, a, and a topic, but I do enjoy it to be a bit more interactive. If you don't interact, I will just lecture the whole time, but I'd prefer not to do that, to actually, for us to have a conversation and for it to be much more casual than me telling you what it's like, but for us to talk about what it's like. And what's on my mind is um, this teaching, and it's one of the first things that the Buddha reflects on. It's not the first teaching that he gives, but when he reflects on how he got enlightened. That's one of the first things that comes to his mind in the scriptures, in the suttas. When he reflects on, wow, I'm enlightened, how did I get here? And first thing that he says after he realizes that he has experienced liberation and liberation in Buddhism means freedom from suffering nirvana means an extinguishing or a cooling of the fires, the flames that hurt us, that cause us to suffer and the form of greed and hatred and delusion and as his spiritual uh, quest and practice brought him to this place of liberation it feels like the way that I read uh, these teachings, it's a, almost there was a bit of surprise of like, wow, it worked. 
And I did all of these practices for all of these years, and finally, I've extinguished that burning sensation, that experience of what happens when we cling to impermanent phenomena, and we're left with the rope burns of clinging. That experience of pushing against pain, meeting pain with aversion, and how much that hurts and the suffering we create on top through our aversion and anger and hatred and resentment. And he came to this place and he's like, wow, no more attachment, no more aversion. No more taking this mind and all of its opinions personally. That kind of liberation. No longer misidentified with the natural, psychological, biological human process. No longer suffering about it. And the first thing that he realized was, or or that he said, one of the first things that he says after enlightenment, is this term, patisotagami. He said, I got here by going against the stream. Because he's sort of, how how did I get here? It's sort of the question it feels like he's asking himself. I got here by going against the stream. The streams of greed, the streams of hatred, the the human biological tendencies of self-centeredness. I rebelled against that. I rebelled, I went against uh, the tendency, that biological survival instinct of clinging to pleasure, of craving for pleasure. I went against that. I went against hatred in the form of meeting pain with resistance and aversion. I rebelled against the natural human tendency to create suffering for ourselves. And he said, but I need to be more specific. It was more than just going against. It was more than just rebelling And he reflected, he said, well, what are the faculties? What are the factors that I uh, applied in my life in this spiritual rebellion, in this path against the stream towards liberation? And he came up with a list of five, as supposedly the Buddha was really fond of lists. There's the four of these and the five that's and the eight of these and the twelve of those and the... And in the suttas, this is one of the first lists before the Four Noble Truths. Before he says, well, how am am I going to teach others how to do this? Before he formulates the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, liberation from suffering. First he says, how did I get here? And he said, there's these five faculties that I apply, these five areas in my life that... I applied, and in some ways I like to think of them as these five weapons of the spiritual revolutionary. These five tools, five practices. And those five are uh, faith, is somehow what the first one is called. Maybe confidence is a better translation. Faith, effort, energy. 
mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And wisdom includes a lot of different things. Wisdom includes compassion, it includes kindness, it includes generosity, it includes the wisdom of forgiving. But let's begin and let's look uh, and have this conversation together uh, with what it is that got you started, right? Faith is the prerequisite. And faith is sort of a dirty word for a lot of us, right? Because we have all of these uh, connotations of faith meaning blind faith. Meaning, you know, and there's almost this Western definition of faith that means believing something that's definitely not true. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Especially in the religious context. Like, have faith in something that is definitely not true. (laughs) Believe it because it was written in a book. It's not that kind of faith. Personal, uh, what motivated you? What gave you the confidence? Or we could you know, redefine and, and get uh, comfortable again with this term faith if it's something that you really don't like. What gave you the confidence to try spiritual practice, meditation or prayer or whatever your intro was? For the Buddha, he saw somebody who looked free. It was somebody outside of himself. He saw someone else, a wandering spiritual mendicant. He saw a monk. He saw a Hindu, an Indian traditional, maybe ascetic, maybe sadhu. He saw someone and he's like, wow, that guy's doing something that looks pretty cool. Maybe I should. I want what he has. I want to do what he's doing. He seems to have more wisdom than me. So reflect for a moment. What was the original piece that gave you some faith that it was a worthy endeavor to try to wake up? To be more free, to be more happy. Was it a person? Was it a book you read? Was it uh, a bad acid trip or a good acid trip? (laughs) Was it, a, was it an intuitive sense within yourself that didn't have anything to do with anybody else? What gave you that original faith? Was it so much suffering? But even that, like I, I wanted to kind of, when I first heard this, I want to say for me, I think it was just I had suffered so much. But that just suffering isn't enough, right? There is some level of dissatisfaction, But without the hope, without the faith that something else would lead us out of that suffering, we won't start our practice, whether you came from recovery or you've come from Buddhism or you've come from your therapist's office. Whatever got you going is what I'm asking. Somebody, something inspired you to start. And we have to have that. So a few people, as you reflect on it, What was it for you? What was that original experience that got you going? Please. I think it was reading uh, Siddhartha when I was about 17. I think that was probably the first thing. So good literature, inspirational. How many people uh, came through the book door to the Dharma? Yeah? Okay. A lot of us. That, That inspiring book that kind of said, oh wow, maybe there's another way what else other than literature please I stumbled across uh, a man named 
Shin Zenyun mm-hmm. and heard some of his uh, Dharma talks on the radio mm-hmm. by chance. Mm-hmm. So a teacher, an inspirational person, how many people, that was it? You heard, you saw, saw the Dalai Lama on TV and was like, that guy's got something. <laughs> I want what he has. Like those orange robes. Yeah, what would I look like in some of those orange robes? Would I be as happy as him? Something else other than uh, an in- individual or literature, please. Uh, getting into recovery. Mm-hmm. And I, it really struck me when you said, um, you know, seeing someone else who looked free. Mm-hmm. And that was the experience for me, was. You know, seeing all these people who had cleaned up that looked so free in their lives and how I wanted that for myself. Yeah. And so again, that's maybe more than an individual, a whole community, a fellowship, a whole group of people that were getting somewhere that we weren't. Mm -hmm. And that inspired us and gave us some confidence in the process, the spiritual practice process. Yes. Actually, it was more an intuitive sense of them just trying it out and it worked. Yeah. So just that, for many people, how about other people inside, there was just some knowing, some sense. So, that's the piece, right? Now there's another piece to faith, to confidence. There's what gets us started. And then more importantly is the verified faith, which Buddhism puts much more stock in. What keeps you going, right? And that's maybe the hard part. Is what keeps us going, right? Of what really, uh, how do we maintain that faith, that confidence? Because maybe sometimes there's that original pink cloud type of experience and you meditate and you feel all good and then next week you try meditating again, it's not good at all. And all you see is how confused and angry and afraid your mind is. So then there's another piece of how do we uh, maintain faith? And continue it. And of course, traditionally, that happens by some of what we said, association with inspiring people, wise friends, community, huge. Being involved with a group of like-minded revolutionaries, of people who are also going against the stream. Because this world, from this perspective, is a setup. You know, there's so much greed and hatred Mm -hmm. and delusion that the chips are really stacked against us. And it's easy to get hopeless if we're out there uh, with the mindless masses of humanity who are completely asleep. And we need to gather regularly with those rare individuals who are saying, I don't want to be completely asleep. I want to be awake. And that inspires us. It gives us more confidence to continue, to have some hope, some faith. So, please... Nature. Huge. And it's a huge part of Buddhism. It's a huge part uh, as people come to the Buddha and, and say, I'd like to learn you know, meditation. He says, okay, go and sit in, you know, go find a tree and sit underneath it. <laughs> Pay attention to your breath and body. Pay attention to both the internal and the external. Nature. Be in the natural world. Yeah. Please. <coughs> When I uh, when I heard the uh, second noble truth, when it 
registered mm -hmm. like the first true thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. The transformation from that point to Yeah, the teachings, right? The finally they know, right? Finally I'm being told the truth. And not because they say it's true, but because, like you said, it registers. The first time, finally someone's telling me the truth. I get it. Um, I think for me, it, the hope is um, really turned when I sat for a sign-up retreat multiple days, mm -hmm. and there was nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. So you just sat long enough to watch it all move through. Mm -hmm. And then that developed the hope that there was something more than just the high of it. Yeah. That you can handle all of it. That confidence, that direct, uh, verified faith that there's nowhere to go, there's <laughs> nothing to do, and whatever arises will pass. And that I'll be okay no matter what. Meditation retreats, silent retreats are very key for us to see the passing show in more than a 45-minute or 30-minute meditation, but for days on end. So let's move forward to the second faculty, uh, effort. Now, there's two kinds of effort. There's both the effort and uh, the word here, wiria, translates as vigorous, energetic, vigorous effort. So it's not sort of a casual, oh, yeah, I go to Sangha once a week. No, it's like vigorous. You know, he's saying to go against the stream, hardcore effort. Not casual, not, you know, yeah, I, I pray once a month. Not the wine cooler of spiritual practice. <laughs> Getting strung out on spiritual practice. Putting real effort into it. And he says that comes, and we see this in our lives, it comes in two uh, different forms. It's both the effort to cultivate the good, and you know what we're going to talk about as wisdom, to cultivate compassion, to cultivate wisdom, to cultivate mindfulness, to train our mind, the effort into meditation, to be generous, to be loving, to be kind, to be compassionate towards pain. And also to abandon the effort of renunciation. It's not only the effort of what we're going to do, our meditation practice and practicing spiritual principles, but also the effort to disengage from that which we're doing that was not working. The attachment, the aversion, the greed, the hatred, the holding on to the resentments, all of that stuff that's blocking our freedom. The effort of abandoning, of letting go. And so thinking for yourself for a moment, each of us, what's not working in your life? What is it time to abandon, to renounce? What is it that we have to defy? Those old habits, whether it's the biological survival instinct of getting so attached to everything, being identified with this mind and all of its judgments and fears and believing it, taking all of this impersonal process personal as me and I and mine. One of the things that the Buddha is asking us to abandon is the conceit of self. 
self-centeredness. What else are you ready to abandon, to renounce, to let go of? Okay, I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> Please. Expectations of others. Mm-hmm. Atta- which is attachment. Expectations, holding on to expectations. Heartache. Heartache. Letting go, abandoning that uh, victim type of mentality of heartache, of holding on to the past pains. Mm-hmm. The, any forms of dishonesty. Of course, traditionally, this comes as the five precepts for us, which is abandoning all forms of violence and murder, harming, abandoning dishonesty in the form of taking that which is not given, abandoning unskillful speech, letting go of, you know, of lies and dishonesty, abandoning uh any form of sexual misconduct, knowing how much suffering is created through being unwise and unskillful with what in Buddhism is called illicit sexuality, right? Which is funny, right? Unlawful sexuality. They don't actually tell us what the law is. They just say, don't, don't break it. <laughs> because we each know better. We actually do know inside of us. And uh, abandoning from this perspective uh, intoxicants. Those substances that cloud our ability to be fully present. And Buddhism is a sober tradition. Buddhism and the Buddha's teachings, he was clear, said if you want to be awake, stop putting things into your body that put you asleep. Because that's what intoxicants do. That's why they feel so good, right? Because they knock you out. Please. Ultimately, yes. Our goal, for sure, is going to the place of non-intentional mental violence towards ourselves or others. Now, there's something, and then maybe I'll get to this in the wisdom piece, if I talk really fast. (laughs) There is something, um, some level of powerlessness over what arises in our mind. that sometimes mental violence will arise without your intention, without your volition, without you doing it. It's just an old pattern of the mind coming, which is different than volitional mental violence, which is intentionally having ill will or harsh or harmful or violent thoughts towards someone. Does this make sense? Yeah, the difference between intentional and unintentional. Effort into cultivating the good. And the main pieces is moving on to the third and fourth. The main tools, the main practices that the Buddha did that led to his liberation were mindfulness and concentration. And that effort that it takes to train the mind to be mindful. It is not our natural tendency to be mindful. It is a practice. It is a training It takes great long-term effort to train our minds. 
to be mindful, even just the requisite present time awareness. It's really fucking hard, isn't it? You tell your mind, pay attention to the breath. Your mind says, yeah, right, I got plans to make. I've got memories to rehash. You're not the boss of me. I'll do whatever I want. You notice that you're not the boss of your mind? Told your mind to pay attention to your breath tonight. It disobeyed you, did it not? And the effort that it takes to tame, the Buddha said it's the monkey mind. In one of the suttas, he says it's like taming a wild monkey. And this wild monkey mind's tendency is to spend a lot of time planning. To spend a lot of time remembering. To have sort of a fear-based mentality that doesn't hang out in the present very often, but really likes to plan for the next pleasure or how to avoid some future pain. Again, this is our survival-based animal instinct. And the effort that it takes to go against living in that survival-based mentality if we want to be free from suffering. Concentration and mindfulness are connected in this way. Concentration is the experience of choosing what you pay attention to and staying with that chosen object. Like with the breath. Breath is concentration. If you're choosing to pay attention to the breath and you're able to stay with the breath as it comes and goes, you're concentrating on the breath. When we In the meditation, when we expand from the breath to the whole body, to present time awareness, that's mindfulness. Keeping the mind fully in the present without choosing what present time experience we're paying attention to. Choiceless present time awareness is different than concentrated present time awareness. It's an important distinction. You may or may not get it yet, but it's an important distinction if you're serious about meditation. And it takes great effort to tame this monkey mind. It takes great effort to renounce uh, attachment and aversion. It takes great vigorous effort to go against the stream, to rebel against, our own survival instincts towards awakening, towards freedom, towards happiness. To break the selfish, jealous, comparing tendency and to begin to uncover a more genuine compassion and generosity, selfless attitude takes great effort. And that effort is sustained by our confidence. That is the prerequisite and the effort. And then it goes into practicing mindfulness, to training the mind, to getting concentrated. And when we're mindful, when we tame the monkey mind and hang out in the present, and we really start to get the wisdom, not the wisdom from the books, not the wisdom from the historical Buddha or from the Dharma teachings or teachers, but the wisdom from your own direct experience. Seeing impermanence, having insight into the truth of impermanence 
directly, not theoretically, not intellectually. Wisdom is not knowledge. It's not knowing the way that it is in your mind. It's experiencing the way that it is in your body and coming into more harmony with what you know. Right? You know everything is impermanent, don't you? You have that knowledge, I hope. Do you have that wisdom? Do you live from that wisdom? We don't. Because we get it, we know it. But we haven't done the work, most of us haven't done the work, to really transform our relationship to come into more harmony. To really be wise in our relationship to the constantly changing nature of all things, of life and death. And I asked us tonight in the meditation, and I don't know how used to uh, doing this you are, but during your mindfulness to reflect on death. To reflect on death on a daily basis is wise. Because death is inevitable. And as long as we're living in denial of death, we are not living in wisdom. We are not living in harmony with truth. With the way that it is. And in the initial meditation instructions, the mindfulness instructions of the Buddha, after he encourages us to pay attention to our breath and our body, body, this death reflection is right there in the first foundation of mindfulness. In the Vipassana instructions. Reflect on the impermanent nature of this body and that this body will die and that it will dissolve and that it will decay and that this corpse will rot. And find a reliable refuge. Find an understanding, a wisdom that is beyond the physical. Because if you think you're this body when you die, you're going to be really confused. <laughs> because the body's going to be dead and you're not. And what a mind fuck that's going to be. <laughs> and so wisdom into impermanence, wisdom into the impersonal nature of this body and mind. And I say impersonal because so much of what's going on here, and I'll say it a thousand times, is not self. It's not you. It's not your mind. It's just what human minds and bodies do. What all animal minds and bodies do. They cling to pleasure. They hold on to resentments. Trying to protect ourselves from future pain. One of my teachers, colleagues, friends, Wes Nisker, maybe some of you know him, I teach with him often. He says he takes this sort of impersonal nature uh, down and uh, over his you know, 40, 50 years of practice. He says he sort of turned it into a mantra that he just has to remind himself all of the time. I am not my fault. 
<laughs> the attachment and the aversion, the self-centeredness of this human condition, it's not your fault. It's the way that it is. It's the norm. It's the status quo. Until we go against the stream. Until we rebel. Until we begin to wake up. That's just the human condition. You're not doing anything wrong. You just happen to have been born into a mind that craves for pleasure. Into a body that hates pain into a psyche that will hold on to resentment for the rest of your life in order to try to protect you from further betrayal. It's not your fault. That's just what we're facing here. Wisdom also means compassion. When we're mindful, when we get concentrated and we see the impermanent nature of all things, and we see the impersonal nature of attachment and aversion, then it becomes clear that the only wise relationship to pain is to care about it. It's the only thing that works. This isn't spiritual, this is practical. Aversion to pain creates more pain, creates suffering, creates dissatisfaction and dis-ease. Compassion towards pain, caring about it, being kind and merciful, forgiving, is practical. It works when applied to pain. No suffering, just pain. It's one of the reasons I believe that the Buddha said his awakening was against the stream and that he prophesied that very few people would actually like what he had to say. He said, because I found this nirvana, this extinguishing of the fires of suffering that does not mean freedom from pain. Enlightenment does not mean freedom from pain. Pain is a given unavoidable, inescapable. And we don't like that, right? It's right in us to want to avoid pain. We're wired to want to avoid pain. So most people will say, well, I'm not into Buddhism. They you know, still have pain. <laughs> I'm going to go down and do some yoga. They're promising bliss forever. <laughs> I'm going back to church. They live, you know, in heaven forever in happiness and peace. Buddhism, they still have pain in their enlightenment. That's one of the reasons why the Buddha said it's against the stream. Because the stream is that we're so attached. We crave for pleasure so much that we'll even create deluded views of enlightenment. We'll even turn awakening into pleasure forever. Right? Because that's what we want to be true. But it's not true. Nirvana isn't pleasure forever. Nirvana is freedom from suffering. And even in the Buddha's enlightened nirvanic state, the extinguished 
greed and hatred and delusion, he still experienced quite a bit of pain. Not only physical pain as he got old and is walking barefoot and his back is giving out. Also emotional pain. And also, you know, to that question of mental violence. In Buddhist scriptures, greed, hatred, and delusion are personified by Mara. Mara is the embodiment of greed and hatred and delusion. And it's an extinguishing of that identification with that that is nirvana. And it's under the Bodhi tree and the Buddha battles with Mara. Freestyle rap battle. (laughs) And the Buddha is victorious temporarily. Right? It's when he sees through Mara for the first time. But Mara does not go away forever. Mara goes away temporarily. But with the continued faith and mindfulness and concentration, the Buddha has the wisdom to meet Mara every time Mara returns, every time that unconscious, unintentional thought of violence, that unintentional thought of greed, that unintentional thought of uh, self-centeredness arises. The Buddha is wise enough to say, you're not me. I see you, Mara. This is just the mind. This is just the body. I'm not going to take the bait from Mara and suffer about this arising difficulty. It's just another unpleasant thought or feeling. It's just some more mental pain. Mara hurts. To have violent thoughts, if you're sensitive, it hurts. To have lustful, attached thoughts, greedy thoughts, it hurts. But it's just pain. And if you don't take the bait, you don't have to suffer about it. It'll pass. Impermanent. Mara will die its own natural death if we're patient enough to allow it to arise and pass. Compassion's hard to uncover. There's so much going on in our bodies that's resisting. It clings. My feeling is, and I say uncover rather than cultivate. Often in the scriptures they say cultivate. My experience says that there's a a source of compassion and kindness and appreciation right here within all of us. It's what they later started to call our Buddha nature. That's what the Buddha originally said, was that all any being has the potential for awakening. All beings have what it takes to get enlightened. That it's the potential is there within all of us. And enlightenment means to be kind and compassionate, to be wise and generous. To not take the mind so personally. To not suffer about the pains that this body experiences and the impermanence that this world presents. 
It doesn't mean freedom from difficulties. It's not a lobotomy, people. (laughs) It's a radical shift in how we relate to life. But my feeling is, is that this path that goes against the stream, and I've experienced it myself on relative levels, I'm in no way enlightened, but over the last 20 years of practice, I've seen a lot of changes, a lot of progress in how I relate to life and the pains that I experience and the impermanence. And that that compassion that I thought was so elusive when I began uh, seems to have been uncovered from right here within myself, that it's right here within each one of us. Compassion is not something that we gain from outside. It's there, it's in us. It's just buried It's just covered and obscured by that survival instinct, by the attachment and the aversion. And by hardly ever slowing down enough to pay attention to what's happening in here. That if we're constantly looking out there, we're never going to find the compassion. Because we have to look in here, because that's where it lives. So these are some of my thoughts about the Buddha's teachings on the five faculties. Any questions or comments, clarifications about what I've said so far? Please. I think it should be a statement about you not being enlightened by us. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.